0: Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Um, So, we're in this uh, worship series, Faith, Hope, and Love, the Trinity of Christian Values, and I'm reading tonight from Romans chapter 3. I want to make a couple of preliminary remarks about the epistle to the Romans. One is that it's really hard to lift out just one or two paragraphs from Romans because Romans altogether is more or less a unified argument. It's harder in this epistle than some of the others to read just one section without understanding what comes before it and all that comes after it. And it's a long and complex argument. I'm not going to attempt tonight to show the whole thing, but in some sense, the sermon tonight depends on your trust that the small section we're reading tonight is part of a much larger whole. The second remark I want to make before we start is that in this text, uh, Paul will refer to the law again and again and again, the law. It refers to a covenant of loyalty between God and Israel. It does not, the law, does not refer to a ridiculous or small-minded or legalistic way of false religiosity. The law refers to a loving way that God and God's people worked out what it would look like for them, that is for Israel, to belong to God and God alone. Their adherence to religious law was their way of saying, we are yours, only yours, no one else's, yours alone. And we have to be careful, especially right now, but always. We have to be careful to avoid anti-Semitism in our Christian inheritance. When we read Romans and lots of other texts that seem to diminish or even discount the Torah, the religious law, as a legitimate way of relating to God. It's not our fault, but it is our problem that we have inherited anti-Semitism along with our Christian identities. It's just, it's shot through and through the theology that many of us learned. And so tonight I just want you to be aware and keep in mind that as Paul speaks about the law, he's talking about a loving and legitimate way for his own religious kin and Jesus' religious kin to relate to the deity Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. God did this to demonstrate God's own righteousness Because in God's divine forbearance, God has passed over the sins previously committed. And it was to demonstrate at the present time God's own righteousness. So that God is righteous. And God justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No. Rather, through the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is God not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one and God will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, It seems a shame to say it after all the beauty we've experienced tonight, but this sermon is more of a thinking than a feeling sermon. You know what I mean? You got to kind of put on your thinking cap and be ready to do some work. Romans will do that. It's not my fault. Um, And I just want to say, if you're not up for that tonight, like tonight is just not the night you want to think really hard about it. It's okay. It's really all right. You got 17 or 18 minutes, just like play two dots on your phone or something. I know you all have it. Okay. So Lance and I have a nephew on Lance's side, who is a full-grown man now with kids of his own, but there's one story that we're never going to stop telling about Cousin Daniel. It's the one from Christmas, the year he was about four years old, And when asked by his grandmother what he hoped he would get from Santa Claus, Daniel said, four years old, very seriously, because he was a very serious four-year-old, I hope Santa will bring me something that will get me on the road to becoming a ninja. Deanne preached on faith, and then I preached on love, and then Josh preached on hope. And in this worship series on the triad of Christian virtues, we have come back around to faith again. And I have to tell you that it always feels really tricky to me to talk about faith as a virtue. Like, if it's such a good thing to do or have or whatever, you should do or have it more or better. Or you could do or have it badly or insufficiently. And is it thus my job to warn or cajole to talk forcefully or gently in whatever way would get you on the road to becoming more full of faith, more faithful, a faith ninja. But if you're here, meaning both that you are here tonight, having stopped or foregone doing something else in order to do this in here with us, and that you are here in the bigger sense, hanging out with Galileo Church, maybe even co-conspiring with us to get God more of what God wants in this world, well, then doesn't that mean you've got it? Faith, I mean, at least some. Or, as many of you have expressed sometimes to me, as I have expressed sometimes to myself, you feel you have had it before and you want to have it again again? And you hope it's not too late, and that there's some form of it that will hold all of your skepticism and grief, your dis-ease with the whole Christian project, all the things you don't, can't, won't believe anymore, and still be counted as faith, some mustard seed-sized modicum of something that will be good enough? This, most of us were taught, was the purest understanding of the grace of God. That the unadorned human being, the raw form of myself, was unfit for God's presence. But that God in God's mercy would welcome me into God's heart anyway. Because Jesus, because atonement, however we understood that. And that all I had to do to get it was believe it about God, about myself, about Jesus' atoning sacrifice for my sake. Believe it, as in, think through it. and Decide that it's true. And then live my life in accordance with that decision. That's how we defined faith, as the more or less rational response of saying yes to God's offer of mercy, which we badly need. And I think maybe if we had left it at that, a lot more of us might have kept saying yes. Because God knows mercy is in short supply if you are depending entirely on human beings to give you some. And we could all use more mercy very much of the time. But we didn't leave it at that. The church in all its many forms loaded up its definition of faith with all kinds of extras, Meaning that to be considered faithful, we had to also believe certain hard-to-believe things about the Bible, that it is infallible, inerrant, more trustworthy than science when it comes to understanding the natural world, about the church. That it is the singular vessel through which God's mercy can be accessed, and without it you are untethered from God's heart, floating free in the vacuum of churchless space. About our fellow human beings, that without an explicit Christian commitment to believe pretty much exactly as we do, they are deserving of God's wrath, even if they are demonstrably kind and generous and just and even our own experiences, that the tragedies of our own mortality or the mortality of people we have given our whole lives to love are somehow part of God's plan to engender more or better or stronger faith in us. All of these impossibilities we were required to say yes to as part of the faith Package, and still we said we are saved by God's grace alone as long as we believe all these things. And so we despaired, some of us, many of us, able to spy God's grace freely available on the distant shore of a deep sea, if only. If only we could muster enough faith to cross the water. This idea that my faith is the way I access God's grace came, of course, from the Bible. John 3.16, the most quoted passage of Scripture, says, For God so loved the world that God gave the only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And the passage I read from Romans seemed to echo this idea a couple times, at least the way it has up to now been translated. Until very recently, if you read Romans chapter 3, verse 22 in English, it would say the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And again, in chapter 3, verse 26, until very recently, it would have said, it was to demonstrate at the present time God's own righteousness so that God is righteous and God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, this righteous God who is freely offering the gift of grace is reserving it for those who show that they deserve it. By having faith. And here is faith elevated to the position of a boarding pass at airport security. You better hold on to it or you're not going anywhere. As we now know, translation from an ancient language into contemporary English or any language is tricky. And it is very much influenced by the situatedness of the translators. The earliest English translators were influenced by the Protestant reformers, who were intent on stripping ecclesiastical requirements from the salvation equation. The reformers insisted that the church and its priests could neither grant nor withhold God's grace. And they rallied to the slogan, Justificatio sola fide." meaning justification from faith alone. It was intended to relieve the heavy burden of personal moral perfection from the backs of ordinary, fallible human beings who had only their faith to endorse them as deserving God's mercy. So, if you're a translator... Influenced by the Protestant Reformation, when you come to an ancient Greek construction that could have any of several meanings, the choice you make will be influenced by the theology you are swimming in. And it will feel exactly right to say, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. It has felt exactly right to many readers of Romans for a long, long time. But the work of translation is never really done, as we gain new understandings all the time of the way our ancestors thought and spoke and wrote. And within my lifetime, scholars began to question whether in Jesus is the best way to translate that little genitive construction in Romans 3. What I mean by genitive construction, do you really want to go there? Yes, some of you do. What I mean is, there is no preposition in these Greek sentences in Romans. There is no in or under or on or of. There are changes in the endings of the nouns themselves that place those nouns in relation to other nouns in the same way a preposition would do in English. In English, we've got oodles of prepositions to put nouns in relationship to each other. Like, I could say, Lydia is the baby in Katie. It would be weird, but I could. It would mean I'm pregnant with Lydia, right? Or I could say, Lydia is the baby of Katie, meaning Lydia is my baby, Katie's baby. In Greek, we are almost near the payoff, I promise. In Greek, you say both of those things with exactly the same words. And you rely on the context to sort it out. It's something like this. Lydia is the baby KTU. And if I'm obviously pregnant, you can assume KTU means baby Lydia is in me. But if I'm holding my little daughter on my hip, you can assume that Lydia is the baby of me, my baby, the baby Katie U, Katie's baby, same words, different contexts, different meanings. That's what's happening in Romans three, where our translations until Very recently, in fact, every Bible you have on your shelves or on your phone, I promise, used to say, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. The newest English translation, the new revised standard UE updated edition, has finally, after some decades, adopted some very good scholarship that points to a different preposition for this construction. And so tonight, we read from that new translation, God justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. And likewise, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Meaning, God's righteousness, God's justification, God's welcome and mercy and salvation for us because of Jesus' faith, the faith of Jesus, not our faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know if that does for you what it does for me. Give it some time. And if you give it some time, maybe you can start to feel with me that the tectonic plates have shifted under our feet, When we begin to consider that maybe the reformers' cry of sola fide did not go far enough, at least not as long as they thought our faith was the sola requirement for God's mercy to come through not as long as they thought God's mercy was on that distant shore waiting for us to swim the exhausting moral distance or build a doctrinal boat sturdy enough to carry us across or muster the courage to step onto the surface and walk across that water. What if our justificatio sola fide were even more stripped down than they had imagined. What if the only necessary faith for this whole thing to work out for our benefit is Jesus's faith, the faith of Jesus Christ? Jesus's faith that God keeps God's promises no matter what. Jesus's faith That when the worst things that can happen to you happen, God does not let go. Jesus' faith that God will step into a fight with any power to defend God's beloveds and God will win. Jesus' faith that even his own unfaith, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would not unravel the tether by which he was bound to God's faithful heart. Just in case you have not had enough brain yoga for tonight, there is one more thing I want to point out from the scriptures that we read tonight. This one from 1 Corinthians 12, which Greg led for us. And you might be well acquainted with the idea of the church as a community of differently gifted individuals, each of us bringing whatever special talent the Holy Spirit has given to us to make the whole church better, yes? Yes? And later in that chapter, Paul says that we are all together like a human body with eyes and ears and elbows and private parts, all of us necessary to make the whole thing work. Nobody is expected to have all the gifts and none of the gifts is available to everyone. I'm going to say that again. None of the gifts is available to everyone. What I did not catch for an embarrassingly long time in my life of study is that among the obviously rare and precious gifts of the Spirit in that list, prophecy, healing, miraculous deeds, speaking in tongues, deciphering tongues, discernment of spirits, one gift in the list sounds decidedly ordinary. One gift sounds like something I was taught we all must have in full measure to be pleasing to God. Listen again. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And so on. Friends, there is no translation difficulty here. One gets the gift of healing. Another gets the gift of the utterance of wisdom. Another gets the gift of faith. What could that possibly mean? Except that we are not all meant to have faith as easily as the next guy. We can want it. We can work for it. We can pray for it. And in my experience, for some people, wanting it is as close as they are ever going to come to having it. And scripture says, 1 Corinthians says, this is one of the functions of the church community to provide access to the full set of gifts by being part of the whole. I don't have to have all the gifts because each of you is holding part of that set. And if faith Is one of your gifts. Perhaps I can take comfort in knowing that on the days my own faith is wheezing like an asthmatic in a forest fire, you are believing for me. Just like Jesus' faith is for me, the church's faith is for me. Be comforted, church. On the days, in the seasons, during the decades of your own faith's demolition, be comforted. Because what if it was never about you getting faith just right, having more of it, believing better? What if God's mercy was never camped out on a distant shore at all? But right here, among us, where faithful Jesus made his home. What if he didn't walk across that water for nothing?
1: Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on share with us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.